The year was 1968. The hippies and their pop culture acolytes were talking about the summer of love. I was a husky 11-year-old living here in Houston, Texas. At the time, I preferred the traditional pronouns. My hobbies were baseball, comic books, the Colonel's fried chicken, and World War II. We were taking the great American road trip to California. And by we, I mean my mother, her street name was Tiny. My maternal grandmother, her fully ironic street name was Sweet Pat. And my much older sisters, Ashley and Pat, I do not know their street names. Our mode of transportation was a 1966 gold Cadillac Sedan Deville with the Plush velour seats. <clears throat> That's right. Tiny drove each and every mile, chain smoking Winston's with an intensity and a pace that would have impressed Don Draper himself. Sweet Pat rode shotgun, but the gun she carried was not a shotgun. I sat right behind Sweet Pat in the back seat. Our cruising speed was 84 miles per hour, thanks to the V8 Cadillac 429 engine. We had 340 raging horses propelling us west. We made a brief stop in El Paso so that Ashley could see her soon-to-be fiance. He was a young soldier stationed at Fort Bliss, and he was training uh, to go to that crazy Asian war, as they called it, in Vietnam. So the mood in the car was subdued and somber uh, as we headed out of El Paso. I felt the need, the burden, uh, the call to lighten the mood in the car. And just then, with almost biblical timing, I saw a sign. Technically, it was a billboard. And the billboard said simply and emphatically, see the thing, 237 miles ahead. Nobody saw the sign except me, but I saw it. So I asked, what's the thing? And nobody answered. But then, a few minutes later, I saw another billboard advising me that I was now a few miles closer to the thing. And I began to feel a strange burning in my chest. And I began to gently lobby for a brief and timely stop at the thing. And with each new billboard, my advocacy for the thing became somewhat more emphatic. And then the clincher 
A billboard told me the thing was not the only thing at the thing. There were other things to see at the thing, and one of the other things at the thing was Hitler's car. Good grief, are you kidding me? The car of the most evil, diabolical, villainous, murderous, despicable human being of all time was just 37 miles ahead? The car of the guy who was so rotten and evil that my dad and my uncle and lots of other dads and uncles and even some moms and aunties and sisters had to go halfway around the world to give him a good old-fashioned American beatdown. That guy, his car was 37 miles ahead. So this was an existential crisis. My advocacy now was quite strident. It was our patriotic duty to stop and to hate Hitler's car. Now, Tiny was a very well-known history teacher and skeptical about the various claims on the billboards, but she was a patriotic American. So just in the nick of time, we pulled off to the right exit and into that uh, Caliche parking lot for the thing. I don't want to spoil this for anybody who still aspires to see the thing, but I'll have to tell you, it was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> I mean, Hitler's car, it wasn't even a German car. It was a Rolls Royce. It's not Hitler's car. And they had some cheesy wax figure with the stupid Hitler mustache wearing a Nazi uniform in the back seat. That doesn't make it Hitler's car. And by the way, my skepticism was elevated because the driver of the car was a space alien. I know that wasn't right. <laughs> and then the thing itself. was not what you might have hoped for given all of the promotional materials that were made available to us on the side of the road. Now, I do recall that for 25 cents, or maybe it was even a nickel, uh, that I put in a machine, I got to see a chicken actually play the piano. (laughs) And that was way above average. So this feeling or sense of being let down is common in human experience. We fix our sights on some future event or experience and we look forward with eager anticipation. And sometimes our anticipation is hyped up by constant and relentless hype. The Super Bowl is an obvious example. Almost as soon as the kickoff of the big game, we get distracted or bored and began to think about something else, some other future event. Before I became a Christian in high school, Christmas was like that for me. Weeks or months of hype and anticipation, and then an hour of frenetic activity Christmas morning, and then a sense of, is that all there is? And I personally had a knack for bringing Christmas joy to a screeching halt. I got a football and I promptly kicked it through the plate glass window. 
I got a go-kart and I promptly crashed it and totaled it into a mighty oak tree. Our neighbor got a new convertible and I noticed how much the top looked like a trampoline and I promptly jumped out of a magnolia tree and instead of springing upward towards the heavens, I went right through the roof. I got a toolkit with a real saw and promptly sawed down my bunk bed and my dad's prized banana tree. Christmas spankings were a family tradition. Uh, my contention, though, is once we understand the reality of Christmas, that reality that Linus uh, describes as the true meaning of Christmas, we should be immunized against the bogus hype and the letdown feeling. Our lectionary text today about the wise men shows us how and why the true meaning of Christmas sets us free for joy that endures. So uh, the reading from Matthew 2 Matthew tells us the story of the Magi, these mysterious figures from the East, and he tells us the story with basically four scenes. Scene one, the strangers come to town. An unknown number of wise men from the East arrive in Jerusalem. Yeah, the number is unknown. You can, you can look carefully at the text. There is no number given. We just know there was more than one and probably less than infinity. <clears throat> and they began to ask a big question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. Really, all we know about the wise men is set forth in just a few, uh, few words. We know they're from the east. We know they keep a close eye on the heavens and look for signs and portents uh, in the stars. And we know that this particular star struck them as so compelling that they embarked on an arduous and long journey. That's really all we know. There's no evidence that they were kings. In fact, I'm quite confident they were not kings. They saw an extraordinary star and they hit the road with gifts for a new king. And they came into town looking for some local knowledge. Scene two, the evil king hatches an evil plan. King Herod is alarmed by the rumor of a newly born potential rival and he summons the strangers. Herod consults his subject matter experts, the scribes, and the chief priest. And they scour the prophetic oracles and inform Herod that an ancient prophecy predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You can look that up in Micah 5 2. Herod gives the 411 to the strangers and asks them to report back if they find the baby king so that he can, quote, worship him, close quote. Two, the wise men head to Bethlehem. Scene three, the wise men worship Jesus. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The wise men were not let down by the first Christmas. They had high hopes, but those high hopes were surpassed by the reality of Jesus. They presented their gifts, but more importantly, they gave themselves fully in worship. They did what God has created each and every one of us to do, worship the King of Kings. And they were not let down. Uh, Matthew strains uh, the Greek lexicon uh, to tell us they were exceedingly joyful. Scene four, the wise men are eastbound and down. They are warned in a dream so they do not play into Herod's diabolical conspiracy. So, it's going to make this quick. Uh, I have two, and only two, uh, takeaway lessons from the wise men for us this morning. Takeaway number one, wise people do not trust arrogant, insecure, power-obsessed political leaders. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. (laughs) So we'll go to point two. Wise people know that their telos is Eusebia. I probably need to elaborate on that. Two incredibly important ideas here. Uh, The first is this idea of the telos. This is the Greek word for goal, purpose, or meaning. The good news, my friends, uh, in spite of what you may uh, hear uh, and see uh, elsewhere, is that human beings have a telos. We have a goal, a purpose, and a meaning. Now, uh, that's critically important, and I'm going to come back to it in a moment. And so this idea, of course, uh, is vital uh, to human flourishing and hope, is to know there's a purpose and a meaning behind everything. For us, and we can know what it is. And that meaning or purpose can be summed up in various ways. I picked one particular uh, word that I've been locked in on lately uh, from the Greek New Testament, eusebia. Uh, This is a word that goes, you know, back to the Greek philosophers, uh, uh, finds its way into the New Testament. It has to do with uh, rightly responding uh, to the to Greek philosophers, was right, rightly responding to the gods. But in the New Testament, of course, it refers to right worship of the one true God. Now, I'm frustrated because many of your translations uh, where this word is uh, used in the Greek, uh, the translators throw up their hands and I think uh, miss the mark by translating this as godliness which is a great idea. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it's not exactly what Eusebia is communicating. Our telos is to worship the one true God. That is exactly why we exist. 
And if we miss it, we miss everything. So the wise men took an epic road trip with one purpose in mind, worship the newborn king. And they were not disappointed. You can and should view your entire life as an epic road trip to the throne room of the king of kings. Moreover, we can properly consider all of human history as an epic road trip to the throne room of the king of kings, who turns out to be the lamb who was slain. And for proof of this, you need to look closely. And I invite you to do it this week at Revelation chapter 5. This amazing glimpse at the activity and the beauty of the throne room of heaven. And as John is wrapping up this vision, he comes to this triumphant, climactic uh, description where John says something like, (laughs) I hope this is right, I looked And I heard the voice of a multitude of angels surrounding the throne, along with the living creatures and the elders. And their number was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were singing with a great voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature, the ones in heaven, the ones on the earth, the ones under the earth, the ones upon the sea, the ones in the sea, and they were singing to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be all blessing and honor and glory and dominion into the ages of the ages. And the living creature said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is where it's all going. And it's already happening. We participate in that worship even now. But it's just, it's just a taste. It's just a foretaste of what we will know in full and what we will see and what we will hear. And there will be exceeding joy that will defy every lexicon of every language. This is the telos. This is where we're going. And this is where we are and should be in 2022. Yes, there's deferred gratification. That's a a basic Christian uh, idea lost in our culture, but there is immediate worship. 
There is immediate access to the throne room of God, and now is always the right time. And we get to go there together every Sunday and more often if you choose. So what's the alternative? What's the other perspective? What's the counterpoint? Because I'm expressing a perspective that is very much the minority view. In today's world, and in the world of every year uh, of the history of humanity, by the way. We live in unusually weird times, but people have always lived in unusually weird times since the fall. So what is the alternative? Well, there were some very brave, uh, courageous, and brilliant philosophers uh, in the 50s who began to map out the alternative. And if you went to school at a certain period of time, you, you would have uh, studied uh, their works and been uh, awed at the power of their prose. Uh, you might even have been uh, attracted to their ideas. Uh, the prince of this school, known as atheistic existentialism, uh, was a man named Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, <clears throat> Sartre took it head on. Unlike the wussified atheist of today, who want to paint a rosy picture of a, of, <laughs> of a world without meaning, they... They make that sound like that's a good thing. Sartre realized this is not a good thing. It's what is. I mean, he was convinced there's no God, which means there's no transcendent purpose and there's no meaning. And Sartre said, that's what is. So what does a brave person do? He stares right into the abyss of meaninglessness and he tries to carve out some meaning that he himself can create by his own actions, which of course he knows ultimately are meaningless. It's dark. But he was a great evangelist for this bad news and attracted many, many people to his point of view. And his uh, most brilliant uh, convert, uh, was his uh, companion, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. And if you are a student of feminism, which uh, I know most of you are, <laughs> you're an apostles. Now she's, she was, she's amaz an amazing thinker and writer. Uh, anything she writes is worth reading just for the power of her ability to use uh, the language. Uh, <clears throat> And Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre, they had this famously or infamously open relationship, which scandalized all of the, you know, the Puritans and uptight people of the 50s, but uh, nevertheless was viewed as a brave expression of their atheistic existentialism. And, uh, and so, so here we go. She, more than anyone, lived out his ethos. She lived a very interesting life. And she decided to write it all down in her memoir. It actually took three volumes. And here's uh, how she ends it. 
Yet I loathe the thought of annihilating myself quite as much now as I ever did. I think with sadness of all the books I've read, all the places I've seen, all the knowledge I've amassed, and all that will be no more. All the music, all the paintings, all the culture, so many places, and suddenly nothing. Nothing will have taken place. I can still see the hedge of hazel trees flurried by the wind and the promises with which I fed my beating heart while I stood gazing at the gold mine at my feet, a whole life to live. The promises have all been kept, and yet turning an incredulous gaze towards that young, incredulous girl, I realized with stupor how much I was gypped. One of the most remarkable signs of our ridiculous times is that the people who admire de Beauvoir seem to miss the sad power of this self-indictment. And they focus instead on wringing their hands and apologizing for her use of a term that is now considered insensitive to gypsies. <laughs> Lord, help us. Because I am a sensitive man in the enlightened year of 2022, I will put it this way. Do not get ripped off. Do not waste your worship on anything or anyone less than the God who demonstrates his love for us in Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. Amen.